Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsikan, and joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going this week? It's going pretty well. How are you this week? I am. I'm doing well. We have like this wonderful few weeks of doldrums uh, for TV, and it's glorious because it let uh, let both of us catch up with Lady Dynamite. So this yeah. week, uh, instead of a DVD shelf, we're bringing back Emily L. Stevens of the AV Clip. She was just on literally last week uh, or two weeks ago. Two weeks. Two ago. weeks ago. She was way, just on two weeks. Way ago. to forget about me already. Jeez, you replaced me already. In your heart. <laughs> And I don't blame you. Emily's Emily's fabulous, but I mean, I you've replaced me. It's fine. It's normally we wait we wait six months to bring people back, but Emily covered right. uh, the season of Lady Dynamite with reviews over at the AV Club, so she seemed like the perfect person to bring on to talk about Lady Dynamite. Uh, yeah. That'll be coming at the end of the show. Very excited about that. I also have started uh, watching Roots. Watched about three hours of that <laughs> today. So two episodes. <laughs> two. No, actually, you know, I, and I'm, I'm most of the way through the third. So yeah. Of, a bunch okay. uh so so i'll be i'll have thoughts on old roots and new roots next week okay um cool. have you been catching up with anything else or you've been mostly just like adjusting to your new time zone i've been mostly adjusting to the new time zone and watching lady dynamite this week uh because yeah i have watched a lot of like voltron legendary defender which is netflix's uh dreamworks animation uh project which was actually pretty solid i thought um so yeah, but I did that last week, so I was just happy to watch Lady Dynamite this week. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a it was a despite the fact that there's not a lot of shows currently happening, it was still a big week um, in TV, at least for me as an HBO viewer, because we had right you had a bunch of finales, HBO finales, and then so, so Sunday night was big because we had the HBO finales, um, and then we also had the debut of ABC's new game show night. So we'll be talking about that. I'll be talking about the HBO finales, and then there's a few others that we'll have uh, to to round things out. So it'll be a hopefully I always say this, and then it never happens, Noel. But I really do think it'll be a slightly truncated podcast this week. Um, but I think given the patience ex uh, extended to us by our listeners for our many three-hour episodes, I think they deserve a shorter podcast this week. So I think it'll be okay. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, we're not even talking about all the new game shows because I think I forgot to watch To Tell the Truth on Tuesday. Oh, <laughs> yeah, definitely forgot about that. So maybe I'll have thoughts on that next week. Yeah, we should circle back to that next week. But yeah, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to uh, take a break and come back with our week in comedy and reality. So we'll be right back after this.
This week in comedy and reality, we're going to kick things off with talking some game show fun with the $100,000 Pyramid and Match Game. And I also tuned in for a little celebrity family feud as well, which had its second season premiere. The other two, of course, had their series debuts or their series, the reboot debuts. Yeah, reboots. Yeah. Yeah. Or retrofits. I don't know. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll talk talk about about it. it, Yeah. They're both kind of (laughs) weird. And then I'll uh, move. We'll move over to comedy and I'll talk a little Silicon Valley finale the uptick and veep uh finale as well inauguration before we round things out with some andy tribeca this week of course a coldie but a goodie uh so first up the reality the game shows uh slightly different than last week's reality with oj made in america um first of all how how do you feel about game shows in general and uh like had you seen any of these classic game shows these are based on and uh what did what did you think about this even just the concept of rebooting these uh, so, yeah, I've seen original versions of all of these. Um, I grew up, like, watching Family Feud, um, but I've seen, like, reruns of uh, Pyramid and Match Game on stuff like Game Show Network or um, a couple of the other, like, more retro... Bing, I think, or Buzzer. Buzzer. Buzzer's another, like, old game show channel that's on cable randomly that just airs marathon episodes of really old old game shows. But I like game shows, obviously, because I'm watching old versions of the game shows from the 1970s. And so I enjoy game shows. um, And just from an archaeological standpoint, I enjoy watching them, old episodes of them, because I think it's really fascinating uh, to see what we thought were big prizes and what were, like, popular ideas that were in the public consciousness, especially in the case of uh, Pyramid. Um, So it was fun to figure out what cottage cheese was as clues. Um, So... When ABC announced this, I was, wasn't was totally surprised because Celebrity Family Feud did gangbusters for them last summer. And no one expected it to, but it did really, really well. And Family Feud's actually just been doing pretty well since Steve Harvey took over anyway. Um, so I wasn't surprised when they decided to build a night out around, around this. And I have to say that Match Game and Pyramid are both just... They're both very weird shows, Kate. Um, they're, <laughs> they're, they're both, they both feel kind of trapped in wanting to be current, but also wanting to stay kind of true to their earlier incarnations. And it just creates this kind of weird vibe. Was, was I the only one getting a weird vibe because I'm familiar with these old versions? Or did you get like a different kind of weird vibe as you watched it? And have you, had you seen these earlier incarnations of these shows? Um, I'm sure at some point I've seen, if not many full episodes, I've certainly seen clips. And I, uh, I like, you're talking to someone who has a copy of Password and who's like, ooh, an evening of Cranium, awesome. Like, yeah. I, I love watching Hollywood Game Night. I enjoy like yelling at my TV. I've certainly watched an insane number of hours of Jeopardy over the years. Sure. So yeah. I, I, I really enjoy trivia. I really enjoy board games and group, like, shout at your TV kind of games, too. Um, so I'm in the bag for this just starting out. So for me, it wasn't weird at all. Uh, for me, what I thought was interesting was the fact that the $100,000 pyramid, or just pyramid, um, is such a sturdy and well-conceived structure that even Michael Strahan couldn't kill it. Um, Because he's not, like, horrible, but he's not good either as a host. Uh, You know, like, I mean, he's doing his best. It's not like he's not trying, but it's just, he's not 
he's not the right person to host this. Um, and yet, I still had a lot of fun watching the episode because I think they did mostly, mostly, Anthony Anderson looking at you, a very good job with picking their celebrities. And they they very wisely got people who were there to compete, again, except Anthony Anderson, and really help out their teammates and, like, like especially when we had, uh, when it was Kathy and Jimmy and, uh, and Rosie O'Donnell, like it was, that was a good game. They were both in it hardcore. They wanted to win money for their teammates. Um, and I always appreciate that watching any show where it's a famous person who is supposed to, or Hollywood game night, a group of famous people who are supposed to help, uh, give money, get money for a not really rich person. I really, really appreciate the celebrities who take that seriously and who feel the weight of that responsibility. Um, right. So, so I, so I was really enjoying, enjoying that. Uh, and the same thing I think is is true of Match Game, though I think Alec Baldwin is a much more interesting choice as host. And maybe we, maybe that's where we can jump off from there. How did you feel about these hosts? Well, I agree that Strahan's not a great facilitator on Pyramid. Um, but he doesn't need to be, I think. Like, I've never felt like the Pyramid host needed to do a whole lot, mm -hmm. mainly because the celebrities should be, like, kind of big and outsized and, like you said, feel that stress. That's where the fun of the show comes from, is them feeling bad about not being able to help. Mm -hmm. And that's where that interesting stuff comes in. So, but Strahan, like you said, just kind of feels kind of like too, like too, too tightly wound to be in it anyway. Because mm. um, even when he's like kind of like wanting to let loose a little bit, you can tell he's like not quite sure what to do exactly. And that's fine. I mean, it's, it's first couple episodes. Maybe he figures it out as it goes along. Um, but to like Baldwin's point is Baldwin's just doing something really weird, I think, and I'm not entirely sure what it is because he's doing this. He's doing a version of Alec Baldwin doing a 1970s game show host, but we're not supposed to really acknowledge the fact that it's kind of weird for Alec Baldwin to be hosting a game show anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just very bizarre because, I mean, he's making jokes about his wife making him eat kale, but he's making 1970s themed jokes about his microphone being a penis. Mm-hmm. And it's and just all very references to to arrests and legal right. trouble too. Like, yeah, it's Alec Baldwin does not need to do this. So the fact that Alec no. Baldwin wants it's sort of like a James Franco thing. The fact that he wants to do this is is very like odd and interesting. Right. Like, I don't know what it says about him other than perchance a an affinity for the originals and for right. those people. And a paycheck, but well, yeah. it just feels like a weird, like James Franco's a really good example, because it feels like a bit of performance art on Baldwin's part of mm -hmm. doing like this weird kind of meta, like layered hosting gig. And that's interesting. And I mean, it's fun. And he's having fun, like jabbing at the celebrity contestants yeah. uh, panel for the match game. And your point about the celebrities on Pyramid uh, wanting to help, and that's where I think a lot of the drama comes from, is really interesting because match game celebrity formula is a lot different mm -hmm. because there's that impulse to help but then there's that impulse to well i want to help but at the same time this is a really great platform for me to be really weird and zany and maybe i'm going to be really weird and zany and not help yeah and... jb smooth i don't have any time for that <laughs> I do have time for dance break in the middle with the contestant. That was lovely and delightful. Right. I don't have time for your clearly ridiculous, not even trying to 
like at least at least he he wrote down Hickey. Like if he hadn't written down Hickey when the limerick just like took them by the hand and led them to the word Hickey, I would have been very upset with him because uh, this is a lot of money for these people, uh, for right. the contestants. But but no, in general, I was just like, um, dude, at least try. Like, you you can be zany, but then also try. Right. And I mean, you can tell that some folks, like, take it really seriously. Like, Rosie O'Donnell was taking it pretty seriously. Sutton Foster was taking it pretty seriously. Um, but it was also just one of those things where it opens up them to be kind of weird and silly mm-hmm. and it's a weird impulse for them to try and decide what works best for them basically because it's enough of a group effort that maybe if enough people enough of my panelists get it right then i can just do whatever and who cares mm-hmm. and it'll be fine type of thing so i think that that's where like smooth and to lesser extent like michael Ian black's coming from with some of his answers. And it also just kind of depends, like, Smooth, like, took up a lot of the oxygen on that panel, which is fine. But at the same time, it's just like, Titus Burgess didn't really do anything. That was really surprising for me. And, like, Baldwin, like, lobbed him a couple of softballs to get him engaged, and he just kind of went, eh, I'm not, I'm okay. Though, I will say, he would have been a point for me with his answer about Will and Grace, because clearly the correct choice was Jack. That was what that song should have been. Obviously. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I felt like the panel just kind of forgot what that show, how that show worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, Will and, how Will and Grace worked, and that, that was just rough. But that's the other thing is, like, some of the questions for Match Game, especially as we saw in that first hour, what are you going to do when a group of Baldwins, like, how do you come up with something for that that everyone's going to come up with? Oh, yeah, everyone's not. Though Deborah had my choice of Babel. Uh, I also had a babble mm-hmm. of, of Baldwin's, but um, okay. I, I thought Bevy was also very good. Um, yeah. And yes, I thought th- those that was that was fun. Uh, the, the, but yes, there was certain certain questions. And that's why I like that they ask them to pick between the two letters, um, because yeah. some of them, they were not created equal <laughs> at yes. all. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Um, so so how did that tone, that off putting tone really work for you as you're watching this is this something you're going to keep checking in on or would you rather just watch older versions uh i'll probably still keep checking in uh two in for different reasons one like you said pyramid's so durable as a structure that it can't not be entertaining and interesting uh so i'll keep coming back to that because i really like pyramid anyway even if pyramid was a little too heavy on the abc synergy of names of muppet characters and it's just like no abc you stop that right now you canceled um, that show. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I may tune in for Match Game just to see, like, how weird Baldwin ends up getting. Mm-hmm. So I'll circle back to both of those. Um, but tell me a little bit about your experiences with, like, Family Feud before you tell me if you're going to keep watching this programming block. Did you watch any of Celebrity Family Feud last year? Are you a regular Feud viewer? Because I watch a little bit of Feud. Right, It airs. It aired on my CW affiliate in Atlanta. So I ca- catch, like... 15 minutes of it before like the cw shows came on and i was always kind of despondent because they film in atlanta and some of the answers to the survey questions are just terrible plus the wording of them is also just terrible uh so how, how much of this had you watched or and yeah yeah i mean it's family feud i mean we've all seen some family feud right mm-hmm. like i feel like you can't watch tv in this country uh or at least have watch um 
like syndicated TV yeah. in this country. Like, who hasn't been home from school sick someday and then like, oh, I guess I'm watching another one of these. Um, and and uh, again, I think it's just a really straightforward uh, structure and pr- principle. It works well, um, and and it's a satisfying format. So I, I enjoy Family Feud when I watch it. I very rarely make time to watch it, but I do enjoy it when I do. Um, and I think Steve Harvey does a very good job hosting it. He's you know it's right in his wheelhouse, and he does he does very well with it. Um, the the other thing that I think is really entertaining about Family Feud and part of what I think works well with Celebrity Family Feud and particularly the kinds of celebrities that they are using for it, which means, you know, they're, they're I mean, this week it was, it was Lance Bass and Kelly Pickler. And then we, then it was Ernie Hudson and Nene Leakes was the second uh, portion of it. So these are not huge names, uh, but that lets the people who go on, on the show just kind of be more weird and yeah. they're not so worried about protecting an image because they're more there to they're going to make some cash, make some cash for charity, raise their profile a little bit, get some free press. But it's, you know, if they're if they're vanilla, it's actually less interesting. Um, yeah. So so what it sort of functions as is a bit of like, huh. I wish that was or I'm glad that's not my family. <laughs> so like the Picklers were <laughs> adorable, but like. I can't imagine a full, like, Thanksgiving of that. Like, they were just, like, very, like, you could see the connections with, the, like, the the patterns of speech and the, the sense of humor and everything. And But it's just, like, it's, it, I think there's just an element of just people watching that can mm-hmm. be really fun with, with Celebrity Family Feud or just any Family Feud. But, you know, certainly if you feel like you you know, at least on some level, some of the people that it lets you see them sort of in the context and an element that you don't normally get to see. So I think that there's just an extra element of people watching that can be really entertaining when you see the whole family and everything. So like who knew Ernie Hudson has four sons? So Ernie Hudson and his four sons was that team, uh, which was was fun, you know. So um. I enjoyed it. I think it's a good fit, all three of those together, and hopefully they have, have a successful summer. Because, like, that's the kind of breezy Sunday evening entertainment I am all here for during the summer. I need, like, a break sometimes after, you know, the super stressful Game of Thrones finale. Let's just watch some game shows while I'm making some invoicing invoices and doing some work. I'm, I can appreciate some of that, too. Yeah. Um, so, like, as we kind of wrap up this section and move to your HBO finales, um, are there any game shows that you'd like for people to reboot? Huh. Would you like to see any, like, come back? Because I'm, like, a big fan of, like, the panelist shows from, like, the 50s and 60s, so, like, I'm upset that I forgot to watch, like, To Tell the Truth, because I enjoy that kind of stuff, or, uh, What's My Line is also really, really great. Um, but I'd also like to see some, some revamp of, like, You Bet Your Life, the Groucho Marx quiz show, Mm -hmm. uh, which is fantastic and it's on hulu you can watch it it's really good still Mm -hmm. uh because marx is amazing uh but was there anything in particular that you can think of that you'd like to see come back well i just think of all the british panel shows because they're they're really popular at least as far as i understand over in the uk and um there's a lot of really great ones so i always have wondered why that stayed in you know popular over in the uk and sort of faded out of um uh, out of popularity 
here. So I would love to see more panel shows come back. Absolutely. And you can, I mean, I've watched, uh, uh, there's too many years that I spent watching, um, like after school, like Hollywood squares or something like that. You oh, know, Hollywood squares is so great. <laughs> it's so, so great. <laughs> but, but you get a sense, like there's like these certain, like the certain subset of celebrities who will go on all the different panel shows and you yeah. just, really i just really appreciate them so um i also very i thought the i thought there was a very specific eye to diversity in these um episodes as well both with the contestants and also with the um celebrities that i appreciated um so so yeah i would mean i could have a lot of fun watching like just if titus burgess just wants to go on every panel show i will watch every panel show that he goes on right yeah no it'd be great i and yeah and I, I, I do wonder if, like, some of the shift in from, like, you mentioned that all the UK panel shows to the, the scarcity of them on TV here in the States has to do with just a different in programming value and the way that uh, celebrities relate to, like, the BBC as an entity makes a difference in their willingness to participate in panel shows. And this idea of doing a panel show is essentially like a public service in a lot of ways, because you're doing it on the BBC mm. as opposed to how do I get a paycheck from ABC this week? <laughs> and I don't know enough about how that works, but um, yeah. to, to comment on just that. Just from a cultural element, standpoint. Yeah. But, but they're even just like, I'm guessing that they're, they don't have 20 episode seasons of panel right. shows over in the UK. So it's something that fun you can do for you know, a few days um, in, you know, if, if you're do if it's like Celebrity Family Feud in season one was six episodes. I'm sure these will be short run, you know, yeah. seasons. And that's the kind of thing where it's a lot easier to get somebody to come in on the, the break of their, the hiatus of their ABC, NBC, or like, you know, like younger over on, uh, on TV land TV for land, Sutton, yeah. TV land. Yes. For, uh, for Sutton Foster. I mean, it's a lot easier to get those people to come in and do your show of, you know, they, they're only going to do a handful of them. So, yeah, yeah I think that element kind of probably pl plays into things as well. But, yeah, no, I sure. had fun with it. And this is not great TV viewing, but it's fun. And I, I'm down yeah. for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of great TV viewing, hopefully, fingers crossed that this was great TV viewing, how are your HBO comedy finales? The HBO comedy finales, I would say, did were very good. They did a good job. Um, the... Silicon Valley finale was much more typical. Um, there was some some immediate there were some immediate ramifications for Jared's uh, uh, purchasing of clicks. Uh, so so that I liked how quickly that paid off, and it really did a uh, it paid off. Also, what has been a very distinct arc for Bachman over the season. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how he his role at the company and his. Di like how he has matured and how that will shape the next season. Hopefully that sticks and they don't just revert him. Hopefully he is a different person now having gone through what he's gone through this season. Um, when we come back for season four, uh, I thought that that worked well. Um, I'm, you know, I, I, just, I think it was, it was a strong finale. There were some, some particularly entertaining moments. I liked what we <laughs> gave Guilfoyle and Dinesh to do. Um, was, was, I thought that was pretty fun. And the vote worked well. Hopefully Monica is not out of a job. Um, but if she is, then that's an easy way to incorporate her more fully with this cast. Um, she could definitely use more to do. So we'll see what they have planned, but I thought it was solid. Uh, even if I wasn't, you know, 
falling out of my chair. And the Veep finale inauguration. Now, uh, do you know what happened in this, Noel? No, I don't. I was I was waiting to hear what happened while we talked about it because I was I was curious to just go in pure for this podcast and you're you talking about it. Okay, so in season five, in the season five finale, the show has been renewed. The show was renewed before it premiered the season for okay. season six. Selena right. loses the presidency. And and steps down. We have the inauguration of the next president, and the show will follow Selena next year as a former president. That is the show. That's what happens. That sounds kind of interesting. Okay. How do you feel about it, though, as someone who like actively watches the show, and me who just watches it through you discussing it? How do you <laughs> feel about that? Well, um, it was a very surreal experience watching it. Sure. And I, th- I think that was very effective for putting us in her shoes because as, you know, informed viewers and myself as someone who reviews the show for the AV Club uh, and gets paid to do that, so therefore follows it pretty darn closely, we all know that it's coming back next year. Yeah. So I just keep waiting as you're watching it. Okay, when? Okay, but when's the twist going to come in? And when's the... Okay, when are they going to have their... Thing, the reveal and then there just isn't one and so I think that really puts you in Selena's position of desperately like hoping for a last minute save somehow when there isn't one however I don't it feels like a series finale it very very much feels like a series finale and sure they all the characters go off to different jobs or you know Mike who they were gonna fire anyways uh it becomes a stay-at-home dad because now it's gonna have twins and a, a you know a, a baby that he and his wife adopted from china who turns out to actually be six who they, they think she's three but she's six um so now all of a sudden they have three kids i don't know where he's gonna be a stay-at-home dad um while the mom works um and so like everybody kind of just goes off and does has their endings and they, they make sure that they send all the characters off in satisfying ways so that if we don't see them next year it makes sense you know yeah. And they the writers have at this point started they've started working again on the new season but at the time like they didn't, you know, who knows who could come back, who won't come back. The only people we know will be back is Selena and assumedly Gary and probably Catherine as well, the daughter, be, you know, cuz Gary will follow Selena to the ends of the earth. Yeah, but everybody else, I mean, they all have new jobs or are retired and happy. Um, Ben is retired and not happy, but I don't know how the show gets them back together in a satisfying way that doesn't feel very contrived. Sure. In the next season. Or if they, or maybe they won't. And if they don't, for me, the show isn't just the Selena show. It's this whole extended, ridiculously talented ensemble. So if this is really kind of like a series finale and the next season is more like a spinoff, then that's, I mean, I'm sure it'll be very, very funny because David Mandel, uh, Mandel has done a fantastic job this season as the new showrunner, and the guy is very, very funny, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus can do no wrong. She's brilliant. All of her shows, even watching Ellie, which had about, like, half of a season, have been very, very funny. So any show with her and him, any show with her will be very good, and a show with her and him is probably going to be incredibly funny, but I don't know that it'll feel like Veep, so... I'm just really torn on it. So I thought it was a, I thought it was a solid and very, an interesting series finale, surprise series finale. Uh, But it's not. So 
we'll see, sort of, is where I'm at with it. But I, I thought it was, you know, it, it's audacious in a way because it does feel so much like a series finale, even though it's not. Um, yeah. And I, I would have liked to have been laughing more. And it made me appreciate the previous week's episode, which had me, like, rolling on the floor laughing so much. Uh, it made me appreciate that episode one more, t- even more. And it made me appreciate that they gave all of those characters one more episode where they got to be really funny and the different you know actors got to interact with each other and being hilarious and everything. Um, so, yeah, it was just very odd. I, it, like, I was watching it going, wait, is there still going to be a season six? What is, what is going on? Um, so it was very... Uh, it was a very surreal viewing experience, like like I've already said. Um, but on the whole, f- funny, good, some good moments, some some mm-hmm. you know, you know, satisfying end to Selena's tenure as president. Um, and we'll see what happens next year. What's Selena's like political background? Like, where did she? Where was she before she was the vice president? What did she do? She was a senator uh, before she became. She ran for president, and became vice president instead, um, and then. When the president resigned, she got bumped up to the presidency. So that's, you know, and, and it has one year in the presidency before she does not get reelected and has to step down. Well, the reason I asked was, A, like, I'm in, I'm vaguely interested in the idea of dramatizing what a post-presidential life looks like. Even though, like you said, that sounds vaguely spin-offy. But that's something that hasn't really been explored all that much, I feel like, in fiction. And I think that's an interesting idea. But the other thing is, and the other reason I asked, like, what her political background was, is, I mean, Selena could totally John Quincy Adams this and run for the House of Representatives and be awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true. Because Quincy was, like, a senator. Senator first, got recalled, served as a Secretary of State and a diplomat, then ran, ran I'm doing air quotes because you weren't supposed to run for president in the 1800s, and then... After he, after his one term as president, he went to the House of Representatives and served there for like almost twenty years. So she could, she could feasibly run for office like halfway through next season again. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll see what they do. the The showrunner has, you know, come out and said, you know, for him, the whole point of the show is Selena being denied the things that she most wants. Okay. Which is why, that's, you know, she had to lose. That's why she yeah. can't win. Um, you know, and that's the fundamental uh, fundamental element of the show for him. Um, but then I don't know how you have her run for anything again, because you can't have her lose again. Yeah. So then she'll have to win. But then she, you know, like, I, I don't know. I just, we'll see what they do. We'll, I mean, that's not not my problem. That's why I am not a TV writer. Right. Same, same, same here. Smarter people <laughs> than me will figure something out, I'm sure. Uh, but I've gone on way too long with that. Uh, let, let's toss over to you. What did you think of this week's Andy Tribeca? Uh, a coldie, but a goodie. I enjoyed this week's Andy Tribeca a whole lot. Mainly because it was a really nice send-up of give me your badge, give me your gun Mm -hmm. um, type of stuff. And then because Angie's being investigated by Internal Affairs, brilliantly played by... That's Mary McCormick, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so who's having a ball? She's fantastic in this. And so she's like chained to a desk because of the Internal Affairs investigation based on the cyber hack... And so she's chained to a desk. She's not allowed to do any new cases. And she starts looking into 
falling deaths of senior citizens and then finds out that they're all connected to something. And it's just really funny because at one point she's just literally chained to her desk and she's taking her desk down to forensics and just lugging it down there. And I'm just, I'm cracking up the entire time. Oh, I would have uh, come up after he, she had asked him if he yes. could come up. Yeah. Oh, I would have come up and I would have come down. And it's just like, yes, this is great. <laughs> um, so plenty of really good stuff in the episode. I had a lot of fun with it. And I, I liked how it, I wasn't like totally satisfied with like the resolution of it. Because I'm not entirely sure how I feel about Ange- this ongoing arc about the f- about the evil corporation and the hacking and everything. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that yet. But I like... It still had plenty of really silly, slapsticky humor. So I was really good. Plus, oh gosh, phone inappropriate phone calls during a SWAT swarm. <laughs> Pretty solid stuff, including, including for the dog. Of including, course. F- including for the dog. So... I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, what did you think about it this week? Like you said, the the gag with the desk uh, works pretty great, and the, the thing with the chair I also enjoyed. Uh, anyone who's spent any amount of time uh, in a chair knows how strongly uh, that can impact your daily experience. So I appreciated the, that little tussle we had there. Uh, the 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 ringtone the ringtone gag we got with everyone at the the. SWAT thing was was a lot of fun too and so yeah I thought it was a solid episode um I'm yeah I I like you I'm not as interested as you know in the um recurring like basically the James Franco arc yeah for the season I think I prefer the show more as um standalones but we'll see where where it's going and it's nice that they're trying something different uh hopefully we'll get something that makes the time we've spent with that worthwhile by the end of the season uh, but next week is called organ trail so i just hope ah, there's ah, there's ah, lots ah, of ah. jokes about dysentery um and fording rivers so hopefully i don't know i think i think i think it was solid and fun yeah oh man now i'm just remembering tanner don't drink that dude i brought that from home Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, kool-aid and cult jokes <laughs> did you get a chance to watch uh beach blanket stingo yet I did. I watched that as well, and that was also really, really good. I enjoyed that episode quite a bit. Um, I don't think I enjoyed it as much as this one, uh, but I still had a really nice time with just how deep he was going into it. Uh, yeah, so no, yeah. I enjoy- I enjoyed that as well. Even just the, the cutaway to Kevin Pollack. <laughs> for- what was that for the, for the few good men? That was just for a few good men joke. Just like- I mean, that was all it was, and it was great. I, it wasn't referenced again. It was just, just hey, there. Kevin Pollock, just there. I'm just like, oh. And then I remember that they're doing a few good, NBC's doing a few good men for this live show this year. And I just went, oh, right, we don't know anything about that yet, aside from Aaron Sorkin's doing it. Yeah, NBC should tell us some stuff about that. Sh- uh, stuff about that soon. That would be good. We'll see. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, not to start to happen for these things that are coming up later in the year. But uh, for now, what wins your week in comedy and reality? Are you going game show or are you going Angie? I'm gonna go game show and just give it to the sheer durability of Pyramid that it still works really mm-hmm. well, just from a structural standpoint, like we discussed, like Pyramid all the way. Uh, what about you? What won your week in comedy or reality? I think I'll give it to, I mean, like, I had a lot, I did not, I was not planning to watch the game shows. I kind of, like, mm-hmm. had forgotten they were going to happen, and I ended up having a lot of fun with them. So, I'll, so, congratulations, game shows. 
I will probably watch more of you than I expected. But I'm going to give it to Silicon Valley. I think that's the episode okay. I had the most fun with. Veep kind of broke my brain a little bit. So, sure. Which is why I'm, I'm not giving it to Veep. But um, yeah, you, you do have to appreciate a show just going, nope, hard left in season six. Yeah. Um, you know, definitely points for our SE to be, but I'll give it this week to the Silicon Valley finale. And, uh, hopefully there's lots more, uh, there's lots more fun ahead for, for what Bachman, Bachmanity run Pied Piper should be fun. We'll see what happens next, but, uh, next season that is, but for now we're going to take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. Satan, we're gonna tear your kingdom down. Yes, we are. This week in genre and drama, I'm going to talk a bit about the Game of Thrones finale, the Winds of Winter, uh, just briefly mention a few things about Greenleaf, which I caught up with, and then we'll talk some brain dead, goring oxes, how you can survive the war on government through five easy steps, and we'll round things out with Unreal Treason. Slightly different titling procedures there with those two shows. Um, first up, though, Game of Thrones, which had its finale, The Winds of Winter. And normally, right, Game of Thrones, episode 9 is the big episode, and then episode 10 kind of wraps up things and you know gets us set for the next season. This season, episode 9 was the very predictable, okay, we all see where this is going. And then epi- episode 10 was just, like, they just blew everything up. And it was awesome. Um, there was this was basically the the like the show just throwing away corners of the series, just being like, done with this, done with this. Now this is you know, we're gonna actually have Dorn connect in. So there was a reason that you watched that, maybe not really, but maybe. Um, and, and I, you know, you could really feel them going, okay, we've got thirteen episodes left that we're gonna do, and so we're just gonna consolidate everything and, and, and pay off some long-standing um, fan theories and also just just close down corners of the world. And that's something that the show has kind of needed to do for a while or, or more fully explore and better develop. They could have done that too, but since they weren't going to do that with Dorne, at least now we know why we are supposed to care about Dorne because they have teamed up with, with uh, Daenerys. So some major things we have going on major things uh in this episode noel because i know that you don't actually watch game of thrones so to keep you in the loop so cersei exploded the city with wild which city king's landing king's landing now she she blew up the sept uh where she was supposed to stand trial by the church and with it blew up marjorie uh, one of many people's favorite characters, because you know we all love Natalie Dormer, and Marjorie is really smart and awesome. Uh, so wait, that- so wait, wait. That means Natalie Dormer is free to show up in Elementary next year. Is what you're telling me? If she's not too busy with the movies, just yeah. doing doing all of the movies, then theoretically, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so that was just kind of huge. Uh, and then after that happened, Tommen walked out a window and killed himself. So there's no king. 
Uh, and she doesn't have any children anymore. So the prophecy that all she would have three children and have a blessed life and then all of her children would die when they were young, that has now happened. So Cersei decides, screw this, I'm queen, makes up a totally bitchin' outfit that is a clear, um, like, parallel to her father's, like, outfit that we saw him in the most, and then and gets herself crowned as uh, queen, the first ever queen of, of Westeros. Um, and she doesn't even pretend that it has anything to do with the fact that she's a Baratheon, air quotes, you know. So she's like, first of her name, Lannisters are in charge now. This is, you know, I'm the queen. Just in time for Jamie to get back. Um, after that has happened, uh, of course, Jamie, as people will remember, killed the Mad King because he was talking about wanting to blow up portions of the city with wildfire, which is what Cersei has now just done. So, you know, that is going to lead to happy things, clearly. Um, the wildfire should have just burned down the entire city because there's no way to put out wildfire. Uh, but the show just kind of glides over that and hopes you won't think about it. Um, elsewhere, uh, Arya is back and she 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 kills Walder Frey, uh, slits his throat after feeding his children to him in a meat pie. Okay. So that that's very Roman of her. It's very it's very Cartman. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that was pretty intense. Um, then we have elsewhere, uh, Danny setting sail for Westeros with, she's now aligned with the, oh, and naming Tyrion her Hand of the King, with all of her Dothraki army, a thousand ships, um, but that are, that, you know, she's aligned with, um, Yara Greyjoy as well. So she's got Dorne and the Greyjoys, uh, at least that name behind her and once she has her dragons just take out Euron who's just come on Euron come on um then she'll have the Greyjoys back uh, backing her as well we've got King's Landing in utter disarray because Cersei has claimed power after blowing up the church like she killed the Pope she like blew up the Vatican it's kind of a big deal. Elsewhere, Bran has discovered that Jon Snow is uh, not Ned's son, but as many, like, as everyone had speculated, Lyanna's son. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and HBO confirmed that he's also Rhaegar's son, which is, again, a fan theory that's been around forever with Game of Thrones. Um, so Bran knows that now. Uh, also, the um, Sam has his bell library moment at the Citadel. So he's gonna be just, like, in his happy place, surrounded by books the whole time. While in the North, the badass of the season, like, the ten-year-old Lady Leanne of Mormont, who's just awesome, uh, has has dubbed Jon Snow King in the North as a Stark and King in the North. So now Jon Snow is King in the North, with Sansa by his side, feeling a little left out, uh, as, as Littlefinger schemes. And the phrase are dead, courtesy of Arya, and Cersei is the queen, and Danny's coming with her dragons. So shit got real, is what I'm saying. All of this only in this one episode. That's that's a lot of narrative consolidation for a show that just tended to drag itself out a little bit. Yeah. 
It really, really is. And there's a lot of stuff that we saw in this season that it was just them going like, yeah, we didn't really need to ever have gone to Dorne. Um, yeah, here's why. Here, like, Let's just give them like 10 minutes all season and that'll wrap up everything with Dorne. We'll never need to go back there again. And let's have Arya leave the House of Black and White. She can do the face thing now where she changes her face. She has somehow learned to do that. We never saw her learn how to do that, by the way. They never taught her that on the show, but she can do it now, apparently. Um, so there's that. Uh, we've got... Uh, so that that part of the world is is, is closed off. I have, have a feeling we won't be seeing um, uh, Marine again. Uh, Dario Naharis is there. So uh, Michael Heishman... Something like that. Michael Wiesman is how people usually say it. Uh, has been left behind by Danny to run Marine. So we probably won't see Marine again. Um, and which also means he can now come be on Orphan Black next season. Since he's Kira's dad on Orphan Black. Um, but anyway, so that has closed off that part of the world. And Bran is now back south of the wall. Or right, right at the wall. So we probably won't be north of the wall anymore. So it's just like finally all the pieces are back in just geographical closeness or headed that way. Um, and it, that's part of why this is such a satisfying episode. I think that this show, this season has gotten a lot of credit for being much better because there's no longer books to follow. So they can just do whatever they want. However, I think it has less to do with that and more to do with the fact that we're moving towards the end of the story. Right. So yeah. I, I don't, that's, that seems more likely to me. Yeah, I don't. I, th I think that a lot of the stuff that we're seeing here is going to happen in the books, but the, you know they cut other things out of the books, you know, from the books out of the show as well previously. But I think it's just the fact that it's the narrative momentum coming together that's what's making all of this happen. Not so much that they aren't beholden to to George R. R. Martin because they're still beholden to his ending to some extent. I mean, because because he's set they, they've set up so many dominoes that there's only a certain number of satisfying ways for them to all fall. Um so I think we're just at the fact that we're moving towards our ending is for me the biggest element, the most uh you know, the the, the most important element of why Game of Thrones feels like it's picking up steam. I would also point out that um uh, for all these people talking about uh Game of Thrones as, you know, it should win the Emmy, for best show, um, and it might very well, you know, Emmy voters like to go with people who have won before, but a lot of this season, while it was good, was incredibly predictable to the point of almost feeling rote, where it's like, okay, now we need to do this so that we can do this so we can do this so that we can end the season here. Um, and, and it's really just this finale that had surprises, that had Tom in walking out a window when he shows no previous signs of being suicidal um, or, you know, these different elements like close, you know, like I, I think it's really just this finale was incredibly satisfying and like mind blowing and crazy stuff going down. Most of the season, I don't feel like had that in the same way. I think a lot of the season was just kind of repairing stuff like with Sansa um, and, and Rams, like there's way too much Ramsey all season long. Uh, so, so I, I think that uh, maybe some of the the glow of this finale, which was, again, I think a very good, very satisfying finale, is overshadowing uh, some of the weaknesses of season six. But it's been a while since I went back and watched earlier seasons. So, I mean, I don't I can't really speak to its placement in the, the quality of the entire series. Uh, I will say that I appreciate 
this notion of season six is the season of the matriarchy coming in because all the guys are dead. So um, there's no one else left. Hence why Cersei can just be like, okay, I'm queen now. Well, that's good after like, what was it last season where the show was basically just like, why is this just raping all the women all of the time? Oh, oh, never you fear. (laughs) The finale made sure to strongly imply Cersei is having one of her tormentors uh, raped to death by a zombie knight. Oh. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. They didn't show anything. Uh, in fact, the way that they positioned everything, the way that they shot that moment is incredibly op- opaque. The only thing that lets you know really what probably is happening is the fact that she says shame, shame, as she leaves the room. Um, because of where he's, st- he's just like standing, she's on the slab, chained down. He's standing next to the slab in full armor, but he takes off his helmet and Cersei walks up. She starts screaming and she says, shame, shame. This is the person who walked behind Cersei throughout the entire, like where she had to walk naked through the city and was saying shame. So this is a callback to that. But um, yeah, that's the only way that you have any sense of what's happening. Um, So I appreciate that they're not showing it. I appreciate that they are making Cersei just like they're highlighting no bitch blew up the city with wildfire didn't care how many people she killed and now she's having an admittedly horrible person raped to death by a zombie soldier um she's not a good person this might be there might be elements of satisfaction to what she's doing but this is not okay (laughs) i appreciate that they don't you know walk away from that did i need more horrible rape on the show really really no negative negative is how much rape uh, i how much i needed there to be more rape on the show um the other thing i still need is sansa to uh stab little finger in the back and you know make sure that he goes down but um that that will come next season hopefully i don't know do you have any questions any thoughts <laughs> i'm just like hearing most of my response from people's people talking about this season has basically been this feels like very much a 180 from how people were talking about it, I think, last year. Mm-hmm. Or the year before. I can't quite remember when people were feeling really disgruntled about the show. Um, I felt like it was last year, but it may have been season four. Um, so watching people just suddenly be like, Oh, my boyfriend's so much better to me now! Um, <laughs> about this season was just really weird to me. But I mean, yeah. I've been in those kind of relationships with shows before where I was just like, this show's not any good. Why am I still watching it? And then they suddenly put out a really good season. I'm just like, oh, this is why I was watching it. So, but it was also just like, I'm kind of glad that it's done for a little while because I'm, I'm tired of hearing about Game of Thrones. <laughs> fair enough. And I do think yeah. that is, I think that is, I think that's fair. Um, I don't know. They, they, I don't know that they, I, I think that people are just very, willing to look past the show's treatment of some of its characters mm-hmm. by saying, well, that was a bad character and that character's gone now. So therefore, yay, all's good. Cause that character's not on the show anymore. And some, somehow like not connecting or not really wanting to think about it. It's like, yeah, but they were, that character was written by the same people who are still writing the show. The character didn't need to act that way the writers chose to have the character act that way. You know, it's like the idea yeah. of, well, it was this time period. Eh, there's dragons. Yeah. You could no, have I'm... anything happen in this world. There's dragons. 
Right, and this gets into, like, larger discussions about Game of Thrones, about everything. And, yeah, so I'm just, like, kind of... I'm glad people are happy about the show again, because I'd rather see people happy about the show than people be disgruntled about the show, even though being disgruntled about the show kind of gives me a degree of smug pleasure as someone who left the show after the first season. I'm just like, hey, hey, I knew better than you guys. I feel smug in a very <laughs> false way. But at the same time, I'm glad that people who still enjoy the show are actually able to enjoy the show. Uh, in, a, in a legitimate way, as opposed to, well, maybe it'll get better, or, like, I really like this one little bit mm-hmm. type of thing. Uh, so I enjoy that. Um, I guess my only question would be, then, what what is your, like, what is your grand unifying theory of everything for how this wraps up? Like, what do you want to see happen? What do you think is going to happen? Lay it on me. Um, well, it's just the the elements that have been there from the beginning so it's called a song of ice and fire we're gonna have our fire ice ice and fire i think i always get those two or the order of those confused um but we're gonna have giant like snow and ice like ice spiders fighting dragons and you know like that's that's what's gonna happen at the end of the show so the army of the north and danny's army the combined armies of the dothraki and they can fight in the snow um, and her dragons and everybody who's left in the rest of Westeros fighting them. You're, you're going to have ghosts. You're going to have, it's going to be like, oh, Tar- Jon Snow's really a Targaryen. Surprise. I guess he, he's going to be on one dragon. Danny's going to be on another dragon. Um, it looks like they're going to go with another stealth um, Targaryen. That would be my guess. For the third dragon, they've made a significant change from the books with that um, by not including a character that is in the books. Um, so we'll see who that is on that third dragon. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there's a. It, it's just going to be a big epic battle, and then whoever comes out of the ashes eventually, we'll see, you know, see what happens. I like this notion of it kind of turning into for next season. Um, Sansa versus Cersei versus Daenerys. I think that's very interesting. Um, and then uh, with their allies, um, I think Sansa's a much more interesting character than Jon Snow with all his pouting. And I, I sort of look forward to just kind of seeing how all of the interstitial characters or like the, 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 like, why are we still spending time with Sam? Why are we still spending time with some of these other characters. Like, I know why we're spending time with Tyrion. I know why we're spending time with Arya. Because George R. R. Martin, and most everybody, likes the outcast characters. And the people who are, you know, not accepted in society, but are awesome. But I don't necessarily know why we're, you know, why we have all these other peripheral characters still in the mix. Especially after this very bloody... <laughs> season finale <laughs> so I, i'm sort of looking forward to a few surprises with that stuff and then just seeing the culmination of everything and that's why this is such a satisfying finale because it's the culmination of stuff and and it's you know they they we can see them fast forwarding and that, that especially after seasons where we felt like certain storylines have been just dragged out forever like aria you know, can't go back to Westeros until we get into the end game because she needs to not be there. So that, you know, you know, she needs to go off and train and become a, you know, a assassin, badass chick. So let's just have her go level up 
off. But let's keep the camera on her because Maisie Williams is amazing. But she's gonna go level off with what sh- level up with what should be off screen for seasons, for years before she comes back. Even though there's no reason we really needed to actually see that happen. Um. So so I look forward to not having any more of that, and instead just getting to see the culmination of what we kind of all have been expecting since book one <laughs> not even season one book one uh mm-hmm. that's sort of where i'm at, i'm out with it and i hope just a few surprises here and there you know would be nice but um sure. you know if, if if this we wind up with sansa on the throne at the end I, th- I feel like you could do a hell of a lot worse and that could certainly be satisfying um after everything she's been through uh yeah sansa on the throne with with sam as her hand you know you mm-hmm. could do a hell of a lot worse. So we'll see what happens. Sounds good. I'm, I'm assuming that Littlefinger is dead at Sansa's feet. Oh, yeah. By her own hand, yeah. I would presume. Yeah. yeah. That's, you know, a, via betrayal. Like, after, he's, he keeps just, like, yeah, I just, that's what I need to have happen. I need Littlefinger to die. Like, more than I need Sansa to live, I need Littlefinger to die. <laughs> and, you know, there's some different, you know, different things like that. But anyways, um, we should move on. I've been talking about this forever. Let's move on to the next show. I'm just going to mention briefly here that I, I did catch up with Greenleaf. Um, and I basically co-signed most of what you were saying last last week. I do think there are some really interesting performances here. It's just, it's sort of like a, just a sudsy, um, you know, yeah. family drama. But, but I think it's pretty fun. And I enjoy almost all the cast. Uh, some of the characters need to, like back down a little bit like the the um the wife of i want to say joseph the brother who's cheating on her uh who's the, the, the eldest the eldest son who no one respects yeah the the i, the, I need that wife character to like just it, it's a for me it's it's the constant battling with with Gigi is a bit much for mm-hmm. me, I don't know that they've balanced that as well as I would like. Sure, um, I can see that because she's like always on. She's like in Lady Macbeth mode the entire time. <laughs> yeah, so just like a little more nuance would be nice for that. But otherwise, uh, I'm pretty much on board. I like that they aren't going for how I liked how quickly they're like, oh yeah, Uncle Mac is totally a rapist. Uh, I like that they like teased that a little bit in the first episode and then they're like, no, that's what we're saying. That's what we're going with. And, you know, and Gigi is determined to bring him down. And like, maybe there'll be a twist on that. We'll, they'll, maybe there'll be a reveal later, but I like how straightforward they are with like, yeah. that is something that is significant enough for someone to have left and never come back. In, from sure. that family. And I think you need something that significant when you're going to have a fracturing this, you know, like at the start of a show when you, you need a reason that somebody left. And I liked that they gave a really significant one. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, we're going to, we'll talk about a bit about it next week, but, um, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm glad that, glad that I'm watching. And like you said, uh, Keith David is delightful. So, Oh, he's so good. Yeah, he's very <laughs> he's very fun. And watching the different levels with that character and and who knows what and who doesn't and um, watching him kind of dance between different personalities depending on who his audience is, I think is really interesting. I also like the very direct way it, it engages with Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah. I think that's very interesting as well. And I can't think of another show doing that i mean empire touched on that briefly with uh the start of season two but uh, i haven't kept up with it so i don't know if they're touching back down back in with that but like this is they've made this a significant 
story point in their first, you know, four episodes here, three episodes. But um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And certainly it, there's if there's more TV, I don't know that I would necessarily be keeping up, but there's not. So I can. And I look forward to talking about it with you next week. Um, speaking of, if there was more TV, wouldn't still be watching it. Brain dead. Growing <laughs> um, oxes, how you can survive the war on government through five easy steps. Here's where what I think about Brain Dead after three episodes, and I'm curious if your okay. thoughts know. I think if you watched the first episode and you didn't turn it off, then probably you know if you had fun with it, if you actually liked it, great. If you just sort of like, huh? Well, let's see, let's see if it what it becomes. I don't think it's become anything else. I think it just that is the show. And it's not going to get better. And it's not going to get much worse. No. And uh, that's what you're in for for, was it the 10, 13, 15 weeks of this summer series. Um, they're escalating very quickly to the point of, I don't know how they can not have everybody have been taken uh, taken over by bugs in the and next two pets. weeks. And their pets. And their pets. Bad Johnny Ray Gill for not mm. taking your Who doesn't take their cat with them? Of course you take your cat with you. You don't leave your cat in the... I have strong feelings out That's about those listeners. Anyways, Noel, um, how do you feel about that? Because I, I, like, people have asked me, like, oh, should I check back in with that? I, I wasn't really, like, compelled out to the pilot. I was like, I feel like if you if you weren't... If you didn't have fun with the pilot, I don't think anything has changed. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I agree that it hasn't gotten worse than what it was in the pilot. I think that what the show wants to do and how it wants to do it just really crystallized. Into over the course of episodes two and three. Um, and I think for me, a lot of that came out especially hard in season, in season, in the, this week's episode, where they leaned in really heavily on a lot of the political satire that, for me, just is very broad and blunt without mm-hmm. being very meaningful or really interesting. It's just like, oh, politicians and extremism of positions and never being able to meet in the middle. It's all so terrible. And it's just like, guys, I know this. I don't need you to, like, make fun of people who espouse extreme positions and then when they're challenged on something, start to have a nosebleed and then their head explodes. The other thing for (laughs) me, though, is that I I have a little bit of a problem with the show just on a philosophy place um just because i don't feel like they're they have done a good enough job establishing the liberal extremism because right now and and this just speaks to my bias and my my person like my personality my beliefs and everything else but i don't think what the stuff that we currently have um air quote liberals but Democrats mostly, I don't, cause I don't feel like this is liberal, um, arguing for and, and yelling about in the country right now is extreme. I think that this is, there's like, so I, when we have the 90% of 89, sorry, percent of the country agreeing that there should be universal background checks and the Democrats are like shouting about that, protesting about that. I don't, and like refusing to compromise on that. I don't think that's extreme. And I think presenting it as like, well, both sides need to come to the middle is actually rather disingenuous and kind of, I think it's full of shit. Because I think there are times when absolutely that is true. And the idea of you can't have a conversation, you can't even talk is, I absolutely agree with that. 
but I don't know that I think that's where the country is right now. Um, and so, like, when, when one of your presidential candidates is Hillary Clinton and the other one is Donald Trump, you're telling me that both sides are the problem? There are certainly, I think there, and this is, again, this is my personal political and, you know, moral and ethical and philosophical opinion on all this stuff. So obviously your mileage may vary, listeners, but I don't think those are equal. I get really annoyed at people who present those two as, like, extreme, like, equal extremes. And so I have a little, there's like a little nagging problem, uh, like a little part of my brain that just kind of fires every time the show presents, you know, the idea that right now in our country, the reason we have gridlock is because both sides refuse to actually start a conversation. Because um, I don't think that, I right now I don't think that's true. I think that, I'm sure that has been true at various points. And I think they do a pretty good job of showing the difference between our protagonist and her brother with that. Um, so within the world of the show, I think they're doing a better job of that. But as an allegory for where we are right now as a country, I actually, I have I have some problem with that. I, what do you think about this, Noel? Well, I think you're right. And when I said that the show satire was broad, this is what you just laid out was exactly what I was talking about is that, they're wanting to make a point about political discourse, I think, as a whole, not necessarily within uh, the framework of a Democratic-Republican type of setup, but more so this idea of how people talk to one another on the Internet without actually having to mention the Internet mm-hmm. and the polemic nature of discourse and op-eds and that sort of thing is what they're trying to lampoon but they're lampooning it with specific people and characters as opposed to through very broad types of things so like you said making this kind of an allegory for political extremism is a weird situation because if we just look at certain types of discourse of extremism the ants don't need to do anything Mm -hmm. so why are they doing it Because it, it works without, the, it works, we, we're kind of doing it without the ants. We don't need the ants to make it worse. And I think that's where, like I said, where the broadness comes in is that they're too worried about wanting to pick a specific target. So they're doing a broad spectrum satire biotic, basically, <laughs> mm. to hit everything to cover themselves and make sure that they're not offending anyone. And that's kind of missing the point of satire is that you have a very specific target, in my mind anyway, that you have a very specific target and that you're going to really needle it. But when you're doing, all right, here's our generic Rachel Maddow-esque newscaster and okay, here's our generic blonde Fox News newscaster and then here's our daily show guy making weird jokes about Gilligan's Island yeah. for some reason. It's just, it's very much an attempt to basically look how superior we are about the state of discourse and politics and our discussion of it, that everything is wrong and we know it and we're going to outline it for you. And that there's this other way that's probably much better, but we're not going to actually discuss that. And that's where the, that's where the show for me is kind of like stumbling politically speaking is that it just can't make sense of what its political message is. So it just goes as broad and blunt as possible without really burrowing in too deep <laughs> burrowing yeah. in too deep yeah. uh excellent choice of words i do uh, continue to enjoy the goofiness 
of yeah. of the ants and like how ridiculous that is. Um, I, I also really appreciate how quickly we've got doctors on board. We've got evidence. We've got, you know, like I like how quickly that stuff is figured out. Um, I already mentioned Johnny Regill. I'm enjoying him very much on this. Certainly after, you know, it's just nice to see him be, have a slightly light, lighter tone than his fantastic, but crushing uh, work. Yeah. On underground. Um, yeah, certainly as, as I'm watching roots right now, I'm also thinking very much about underground and it's nice to have a sillier, goofier Johnny Regal on my TV right now. Um, so that's nice. And I'm enjoying that. Uh, hopefully we'll get plenty more. My Twitter feed is way more invested in the shipping element here than I am. Uh, which I, I'm sure will surprise you, Noel, but I'm not invested in the show's ships at all. Um, I mean, I, 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 I've always shipped myself into Mary Elizabeth Winstead, so, <laughs> I mean, I'm just annoyed that Aaron Tevitt's got better hair than I do. <laughs> Aaron Tevitt has better hair than, like, all of us do, so this it's is, okay. This, this is a very fair point, yeah. so how could I compete? <laughs> but, yeah, but, you know, I, I, I'm still watching. Yeah, and I think your point about, like, the silliness and the campiness about the bugs is really where I kind of struggle with the show as a whole. Because it's just like, I kind of like, and Emily mentioned this when she came on to talk about the show, is that there's a really good Invasion of the Body Snatchers type of homaging and, like, outright just ripping from and that stuff's really interesting. I like the silliness of the ants are obsessed with the cars and just all this stuff that little weird little bits that feel really interesting and kind of funny, but then it just gets dragged down by the political commentary stuff that isn't good commentary. And I'm stuck with these two very disjointed experiences watching this show, and I can't reconcile both of them together because... The campy ant stuff is responsible for the political satire stuff, but the political satire stuff is terrible, and I'm left with just wanting more silly ant stuff and Mary Elizabeth Winstead interacting with people who have been taken over by the ants, and weird lines like, who am I outnumbered by? The people you're outnumbered by. It's just such a ridiculous line, but it's really funny. <laughs> but it's just, not, the two shows don't feel like one show and it's really frustrating yeah fair enough but, I, yeah yeah the walk uh, the walking dead the game game of thrones good grief i'll get to the right show title in a minute good wife had the same problem with kalenda in which she was trapped in her own show for well after season three basically <laughs> so the experience of watching two shows happening in one show isn't exactly a new experience for a show from the kings that's true very yeah. true um do you think you'll keep watching Yes, um, probably at least for the next couple of weeks, um, just to see if they can put some momentum. And I mean, things are escalating, and I'll be honest with you, if it wasn't for Gills and Winstead, I probably would quit after this week, but I like both of them a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, they're both fantastic. Um, and I like a lot of the weird stuff Tony Shalhoub's doing, but I always like weird Tony Shalhoub stuff. So even if it wasn't just for him... 
I would need the two of them to keep going because I can watch Weird Tony Shalhoub stuff pretty much anywhere. I don't need to watch it on Brain Dead. I feel like this is his most Galaxy Quest performance in yes. quite a while. Yes, I'm... that's such a great explanation. Yeah, I'm yes. I'm loving it. I gotta say, it's it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. Um, well, let's move on then to our last show of the week, and that's Unreal Treason. And you called it. Uh, you absolutely called it. This notion that we would have a team up with Chet and Quinn this week, and we do. Uh, I was not happy with my TV that that happened, but I was also very relieved when at the end of the episode that just gets... I feel like they completely under, like got rid of that. Hopefully, hopefully that's the last we'll hear of that so, notion from Quinn. How did you feel about Treason? Well, that's that, that was going to be my... I watched this episode and immediately went, I've got a question for Kate, and I can't wait to ask it. Kate, do you think that Quinn called the cops on Chet? No, because no. okay, because she says, "Did you kidnap your kid?" Because of the delivery we get, uh, uh-huh. I don't think Quinn did. But okay. uh, if they want to retcon that she did, I'm down with it. I I I, I liked the, like the, just her like sort of laughing at him in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was really funny. Um, and so whether it's somebody there who did it or like I feel like Coleman could have done it or whether it's, you know, his wife or ex-wife, I should say. Either way, I think works. Um, but I did think that was a nice, at least for me, a nice little bit of reality check for Quinn. Uh, I don't I didn't like I guess because her father died. That's what gave yeah. let me buy that she went with that as long as she did, like working with him in this episode. Sure. Um, but yeah, so if if they continue that at all in any part of the season after this, I'm going to have a really hard time buying it because he's a garbage person. He's terrible. And she should she's so much smarter and better than that. Um, so I really hope this isn't just like a one and done. We don't see this idea return to. Well, I mean, you get arrested for kidnapping an infant. I don't I feel like that there's there has to be some repercussion for that. And you're found with the infant. Mm hmm. <laughs> You kind of have to stay in jail for a little while, I feel like, even if you are the guy who allegedly created Everlasting. Well, it just depends on whether the ex-wife presses charges. Right. So they, I could easily see them writing their way out of that or just, yeah. like, hand-waving it away. Um, yeah. What did, what did you think about the development for this episode that basically we're going to watch Darius paralyze himself? Yeah, that was that was that was kind of weird and awkward, and I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. A lot of the sports and body stuff for this season is feeling really. I need to see more before I like really weigh in on it, and I'm concerned. That, I'm interested to see how much Darius and why Darius is buying into Rachel's bullshit. And disregarding uh, Romeo because I I'm not entirely buying his belief in Rachel right now just because of where he was when the show when this season started and so where he is now to the fact that he's shunning Romeo to go with Rachel type Rachel's arrangement I'm just like but your career dude your career but and your I get, life 
Right. And it's just like, where are you going with this sort of thing? And Romeo's got the correct perspective. But I'm not entirely sure where uh, his his perspective's coming from with buying into Rachel's position and everything. Are you are you seeing like having based on the your life comment? I'm guessing that you're having a similar type of response. Yeah, well, I think the difference is for me is that last year at this point we hadn't you know necessarily seen through Rachel yet. Yeah. And she hadn't necessarily seen through herself, but sure. we know she's full of shit. Right. And, and she's doing this to, like, secure her legacy. She wants yeah. her legacy as having the first black suitor to remain yeah. intact. For me, I think it's just so so evident from the show, from the writing, that she does not care about him at all. Yeah. That I can't buy into her, to him not seeing through her speech to him. Like, yeah. I, like, I think the, I mean, I mean, Sherry Appleby is incredibly charismatic, but I, I don't see enough of a connection with the two of them. Yeah. You know, like, because they had to sell hard last season with Adam and her for why that, you know, they, they, they I thought they really sold the fact that those two had a similar sense of humor and, like, connect, could con- connect and she could get more out of him because they did have a legitimate, like, friendly even before things got romantic, uh, friendly connection. Um, I don't know that the show is interested in establishing that as much in this episode or this this season, at least from showing that Darius feels this way. Uh, so, so therefore, yeah, I can see where you're coming from of just having trouble buying or, or you know, having it not bother you that that he is sending. Uh, that he does send, uh, you know, his cousin away while he's listening to Rachel and jeopardizing everything. I don't, I mean, like, when he was, and Ruby started getting it, I was like, dude, why are you, like, why are you taking any extra motions, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> you're, this is not, when you're like, oh, how did you get paranoid? Well, I was having sex with Ruby uh, while I w- couldn't feel anything from, from like my waist, so I couldn't tell you if I uh, if I had slipped a disc and had paralyzed myself. But it was really important that I get it on with Ruby. I mean, come on. Yeah, no, I I I, I would agree. It's just like um, he's not in his room. He's out on like in a public in a public for the show area. Mm-hmm. Well, a less let's say a more public since all the rooms have all the rooms have cameras in them so he's in a more public um area of the house as opposed to just his room and it's just it's a very weird sort of thing that is going on so i'm not i'm not feeling like a darius is obviously not making good decisions anyway Mm -hmm. but b it's just the show's not demonstrating that he necessarily cares a lot about himself which is a very weird thing to see, considering, again, where he was during the premiere. And I don't think he, he's been on the show at, long enough and experienced the show enough to get as drunk, basically, on the power trip of the show Yeah. to justify all this. I do like the storyline more than you do, though. I do yeah. like that they go so dark with it, of like, no, not just like, oh, he's going to look bad on TV, but seriously he could be paralyzed and never walk again because yeah. of this um so i hopefully we'll get some stakes to that i 
also really hope he doesn't end up paralyzed. Uh, even if his career is over, I really hope he doesn't end up paralyzed. So I don't know if the way, if, if just because it would just be unremittingly gloomy and dark and I, I would like there to be some, um, you know, like, like the fact that Rachel is willing to do that, I think is enough. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah um, it is. It's totally enough. But we'll see. We'll see what, where they go with it. Uh, and I mean, it's only episode four. We got six more to go. So yeah. that makes me very, especially if this notion of they're going to like speed it up and just do like six episodes and like, you know, everything like that. I am very curious as to what goes next, but I do like, I like the idea of Yale um, scheming. With yeah. What with is Jeremy. her end game here? Cause I mean, she was trying to like get in, she was trying to get close to Wasserman as well. Mm-hmm. So she's got something cooking. Yeah. Well, I think she knows, I think she can tell that she's not final, you know, like right now at least, she's, you know, she was the last one picked in the previous, in, in, in this, you know, cutting, you know, like rose ceremony, but like, a, I think they don't the do neck, the bracelet. The bracelet ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think she knows that right now she doesn't have a shot. And so watch, and she, she's also smart and observant enough to have realized that Rachel is that's her card that she can play. She has to figure it out, figure out the right way. So I like, I like that they're making her more involved. And instead of fawning over uh, Darius, that she's, she's taking a different tact. And I think that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, I still think they haven't earned Wasserman yet. Uh, though I, the, the idea that this is, again, it's not about Wasserman. It's about Rachel's, uh, use of sex to distract herself and to um, as power, but also as is a destructive really force in her life right now. I think is it's more about her than it is about him. But I would like to have a stronger sense of him. Uh, sure. Sort of, like I just I, I have trouble buying that she's as like swoony over him as quickly when he really he knows nothing about TV production. I think they needed to like they've shown that he's savvy about. Um, people and about the studio like the way that the studio works but um i just i don't know i maybe i'm are you buying into them as like a power couple on the show or that this idea of that's i think that's what the show's presenting i think i, I just i haven't i don't know why wasserman seems to be so gaga for her so quickly yeah, I'd agree with the Wasserman not... I don't agree why he would necessarily be really into Rachel. And the show's, like, littered, especially in this week's episode, littered reasons as to why they feel like power couple. Mainly this idea that they can both... If they team up and get out from Everlasting this season, mm-hmm. is that they can do pro, they can do media that matters after this. Like, mm-hmm. something that is significant. Uh, which is a disparaging of everlasting and reality television, which is a fascinating thing for a show that's lampooning, but also like making reality television something interesting and is a show about reality television. So if it's not something worth discussing, then why are we making this show unreal? Um, but at the same time, like th- I, Rachel has a larger sociological agenda, like we talked about with her having a black suitor on. So this idea that Wasserman can open up other doors and they can together make important, important programming, air quotes, uh, I think is where the attraction may be coming from. And this idea that 
Rachel recognizes that she he can do that and that provided that etc provided everything works out that she can use this as a stepping stone to do that I just don't understand why Wasserman necessarily like you said Wasserman would need Rachel to do any of that and where that romantic angle for him comes in if it's coming in at all I mean this could just be some long game on his before and his part and he's a much better player at this than Quinn and Rachel are really giving him credit for but I don't think that's the case. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see. Um, certainly, if you could have, well, like, what's one thing you need from the show right now? Uh, I really need Darius to be better, more fleshed out and better written. I <clears> think <throat> is where I'm coming from right now. I can kind of deal with the Wasserman Rachel stuff is just like feuding shortcut type of deals, and I can I can live with that based on the strength of Shuri Appleby and then Constance's. Uh, Constant Zimmer's performances with uh, the guy playing Wasserman just stuck in the middle. I can deal with that tug of war because of the t- the two great work that those actors do. But Darius just kind of feels underwritten and underpersonalityed right now, and is just kind of doing what needs to be done for the sake of the show continuing, as opposed to what makes sense for his character. And that's kind of frustrating for me. Uh, yeah. Is there anything in particular you're looking for? As we're about to hit the halfway point, then. I would like, I mean, I guess that they're doing something different from last season. Yeah. But I, I would like a bit more with the the suitors or the the the, the prince. I don't know the the women yeah. <laughs> contestants. They they are very much in the background this season so far. Yeah, and I think they did. I like the little glimpses we get um, of them interacting at the, like the fantasy football. I mean, like I'm also having a little trouble with this. Um, the, the level of objectification that we're seeing being filmed. Like, the are you kidding me with those powder puff outfits? Like, yeah, no one no one has a problem with that at all. And well, I, I, they've made that one producer be the voice well, yeah. of this. But, I mean, I don't know. You'd think that the women on the show would, at a certain point, say, no, we're not wearing this. Yeah, and none of them go, eh, this isn't an issue. We're good. Yeah. We'll do anything for this uh, 15 minutes, which is very frustrating. I mean, I had a little trouble with that in the previous episode with the obstacle course. Yeah. But it like like when they followed that up with this, I'm like, mm, I'm having a little trouble with that. So I'd like to see that addressed in some way. Um, well, on the upside, with Chet gone, ever blasting probably isn't going to be a thing anymore. Yeah, but just <laughs> think about what show they're turning in. Like, imagine yeah. watching the show, because the, Unreal wants us to believe that the show goes out, like, within the days of when they produce it. Which um, is... Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but imagine watching the show, and you get a complete tonal shift partway through the season. I mean, that's going to be incredibly jarring, and people are going to, like, tune out. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and... I mean, it's a show that's hyper-aware and discusses, like, ratings constantly, um so i'm not quite sure how they can reconcile that if they'll reconcile that i mean this idea if they talk about ratings but they don't talk about like fan reception or critical reception of the show on the show Mm -hmm. which is an interesting kind of omission for them but yeah who knows so um, that's I don't know that's sort of where I'm at with that. Uh, I'm hoping I like the like the little moments we got with um oh my goodness what's her name braids follow the drama <laughs> that was nice. Uh, <laughs> hope, uh, Madison I want to say hopefully we'll get a little more with her as well. I was liking what we got at the beginning of the season, but I do think she's at like a pause point, so maybe we can 
come yeah. back to her in a couple weeks. But I, on the whole, I'm enjoying the season. I mean, Unreal's still a lot of fun, even if I'm I have some question marks above my head. Yeah, and that's that's a good way to that's a good way to sum up how I'm experiencing as well. I may have a couple more question marks, but we both have question marks. <laughs> well, what wins your week in genre and drama? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll give it to Unreal. I didn't get to watch a whole lot that could contest it. So I'll give it to Unreal this week. Um, but it's a very soft, it's a very soft win. Uh, <laughs> what about you? What won your week? Oh, definitely Game of Thrones. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I might not be as over the moon on the season as everyone else, but I it was incredibly satisfying and entertaining hour of, of television uh so yeah certainly what i was talking about with my family and friends for days um and and again the energy of it and the 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 sense of closure that we got uh very was very much needed and so something that was incredibly fun to, to to see so yeah definitely for me this week it's game of thrones um a few show notes here you can find a post for this episode up at the televerse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's tv you can email us the televerse at gmail.com you can also uh reach out on facebook like the page and start a conversation there or find us in itunes where we have an m4a chaptered feed and mp3 unchaptered uh feed and leave us a rating or review there. You can also find us in Stitcher and leave us a rating or review there. Uh, you can also, of course, find both of us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and Noel, you are at Noel RK. You can find my finale review up at the AV Club, um, and that's going to be it for a little bit for for my my rating uh, for, at the AV Club right now. So we'll see what what I next um, concoct, but uh, but that will wrap up our week. In TV. Now we're going to take a break and come back with Emily L. Stevens, of the, also of the AV Club, uh, to talk about season one of Lady Dynamite. We'll be right back after this. Maria, have you ever been diagnosed with any mental illness? You say diagnosis, I say diagnosis. I'm just trying to get some balance in my life. The only two friends I have left are Dagmar and Larissa. You didn't even visit Maria in her time in need. Well, I'm sure you were very busy, Larissa. I wasn't. Okay. I wasn't busy at all. Thank you for coming to the bathroom family meeting. Don't do that. I'm having bladder trouble. That's yeah, it. That's yeah, it. The floodgates have opened. Okay. Maybe this is a part of my road to wellness, to reconnect, to try again. I needed to learn how to take care of myself. I used to think more was more, but now I realize less. Sorry, I trained my body to sleep with my eyes open. We're back. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kolsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week, it's time for another season spotlight. And uh, we're welcoming you back. You've been gone so very long, Emily. Uh, Emily L. Stevens of the AV Club to help us talk about Lady Dynamite. Emily, uh, now how excited were you when you got the pitch for Lady Dynamite? Did you, like, pitch for this really hard? Were you, like, looking forward to this show? Or did you go in, like, to it being like, okay, I have no idea what this will be. 
Maria Bamford, do your Maria Bamford thing. I... I think the technical term for how excited I was is I was the most excited. <laughs> I love Maria Bamford. Uh, she is, for sure, she's my favorite comedian. She might be my favorite artist of any kind. And I said that in my pitch because I feel like it's important for our editors to know where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. And also for this show, I felt like it was important for it to be someone who is really familiar with her comic voice to review it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've been waiting for the show since it was announced. I kind of can't believe that I got to review every episode of it for the AV Club. That was a real privilege, and it was also a huge pleasure. Yeah. I I loved doing it. Yeah. We we talked about Lady Dynamite previously, uh, like after the pilot, I'd, when, we, when Nolan and I had seen a few episodes, and... Um, I, I think this is fair and all to say that I, I know I certainly and I think I can speak for you with this as well wasn't sure what really to think after like two or three episodes I was like this is a lot um, and I don't know that I have a strong grasp on it yet um, but having watched the rest of the season this week um, I th- what I think is really interesting is I think because I had seen the first three and then I, I started back up again after taking several weeks off like a solid two three weeks off Um with Jack and Diane, which I think is by far the most accessible episode, the most straightforward episode. And I think also think it's hilarious. Um, so after that one, it was just really smooth sailing for me. I felt like I instantly had was back in the world, knew the voice, was very comfortable with the different time shifts. It's it that episode is much less um, meta. And breaking the fourth wall—that's something that's more in the earlier part of the season. So I, I'm very curious. I didn't have the time to go back and rewatch the first three, but I plan to do it because I. And maybe you can, you know, Noel. I'm curious your thoughts, but also Emily, uh, you can give your thoughts on this. I don't know if it's just that I, my brain, like my subconscious, uh, subconscious was like percolating on those first three episodes, so that when I went back to it a few weeks later. It, with the rest of it, I just was like completely accessible. I felt like I knew the world. I had so much fun with it. it. Was I marathoned it all, and it was like I just kept going to the next one, the next one, the next one. I didn't feel like I had to stop and ponder and make sense of it, and really, I, I was completely in it and had so much more fun with four through twelve. Where whereas I had struggled a little bit with one, one and two at least. Um, I well, I guess first Noel, curious, did you have a similar experience at all, or is this just me? Yeah, no, I had a kind of a similar experience in that I watched the first two and then like half of the third episode, half of White Trash. And then basically I didn't watch it for a month because I didn't have I didn't have time. I was moving across the country. I was just like and also because like you alluded to, I didn't have the brain space to engage the show. I wasn't like in an emotional and like intellectual way to engage the engage with this show that's operating on quite a few different uh frequencies which i think is really important to note and is part of the reason why i was just like i don't know how i'm supposed to respond to any of this and part of me is not responding very well um so taking like the month off was probably a good idea but you're absolutely correct in that after especially like i think white trash like the back half of it that i watched um when i restarted uh, worked really well and then from that point on I was just really in it um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with the meta-ness kind of like reconfigures itself a little bit after the first two episodes especially after the first episode 
and they find like a really good rhythm to tell the story that they're te- tell the stories that they're wanting to tell and i was much more on board with them interweaving like the showbiz type stuff with her relationship stuff as opposed to she wants to meet her neighbors by doing a comedy show and we're going to comment on doing comedy stand up within a comedy show type of stuff and it just I felt more sutured into it even when they were breaking the fourth wall and that's a really significant thing I think. So so Emily what do you think? I I'm a little worried that like we're Philistines for not yeah. <laughs> yeah that well or that she watered down her voice a little bit, or just they're like, well, people won't necessarily get. Let's make it easier, because like I feel like certainly um, three maybe as well, but certainly for the Jack and Diane on, I feel like it's really accessible. And I don't know if I just was in a bad headspace for one and two, or if there is for for you a distinct change in those, and if so, how you feel that connects to Maria Bamford's voice and you know her her comedy. What what do you, what do you think about this? Basic, basically, Kate's asking, "Did she sell out in three no, episodes?" No, or just did they go like, mm, <laughs> "Kate can't get this stuff. We gotta dumb it down <laughs> so that Kate can understand brilliant comedian Maria Bamford's comedy." Well, I think I think you're absolutely right that the first three episodes are the I don't want to say least accessible, but of the first half of the series, certainly they're they're a lot. There are a lot to take on. There are a lot to take in. Um, emotionally, there's a lot of there's a lot of emotional content that is not what we're used to TV presenting us in a comic format. There's also there's so much structural, and I found it really interesting. There's so much interesting structural world building in the first two three episodes. And then, yes, as you say, Kate, you get into the rhythm. You pick up how exactly how this works so that instead of having to think about what timeline we're in, at what point in her life are we, it becomes very obvious to the viewer. It becomes effortless. And and also, Jack and Diane, it, it is less meta and it's more meta at the same time because it is as close to a traditional sitcom plot as Lady Dynamite ever gets. It's it's straight up an homage to Three's Company, right down to her love interest being named Jack Tripper. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely full of classic sitcom conventions. Uh, and, and that is a really interesting approach to a postmodern sitcom. So I think it rings chimes for... A general audience that a more traditional show would without actually sacrificing the analytical self-examining quality of Lady, Lady Dynamite overall. Plus, Brandon Ruth is just really funny. Who knew he would be funny? Me. Oh, me. Yeah. Yes. No, he's, he's so funny. <laughs> People okay. keep casting him wrong, but ever since I saw him be hilarious and Zach and Miri make a porno, I was like, "Oh, why oh, did Chuck sure. use him wrong?" And God, then, he's and yeah. he's so funny in Scott Pilgrim. Like, yeah, he's just ridiculously funny in Scott Pilgrim. He should only That's do right. comedy. I had, I had yeah. forgotten he was in Scott Pilgrim. He is hilarious in that. You're right. Yeah, uh, I I barely recognized him, mm-hmm. but yeah, he's he's so funny. He's so dry. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's a great episode, and 
And I would advise if there are listeners who are on the fence about watching Lady Dynamite, one, come back to this podcast after you've watched it because you don't want to hear what we're going to say about the back end of the season until you've seen it yourself. And two, watch it up to Jack and Diane. Get through Jack and Diane. And then if it still doesn't speak to you, you know, maybe it's not the show for you. And that's fine. But it's exactly the show for me. <laughs> it's It speaks to me in a way I can't think of much television or much art at all that speaks to me as clearly as this show does. Well, what if you had to, like, we've talked already about so, so much about it. What do you see as, as the... I guess the whole thing is very distinct to Maria Bamford and, and her her comedy. But um, is there is there a particular element that you feel like defines it? Or is it just like this kind of Louis style, the whole, like no one else was going to come up with the show. And the, the, it's the whole package and the contradictions of it. And the, like you said, it, those are the episodes. It's a lot. But that is Bamford. That is Bamford. And, you know, it's interesting it is very much an auteur-style show like Louis, and they even name-check Louis in the first episode. Yeah. But what's particularly interesting to me is that Bamford herself doesn't have a writing credit. She, she gave a great interview to Vulture, and there are some other interviews around where she's talked about the writing process, and she was involved in the process, but she didn't actually do the writing herself. And I found that fascinating because the show... Once it settles into its rhythm, it is so distinctly a Maria Bamford experience. And it kind of boggles me to think the amount of understanding and trust that that shows between the star and the showrunners and the writer's room. It's it's such a clear example of her voice. It's so... It's zany and it's it's absurd and it's surreal, but it's also really compassionate and brutally frank. And that is her in a nutshell. Uh, they really they really got her tone. And that's what made it so watchable for me. Well, I think she's incredibly Maria, especially as you go along, especially as you get a feel for her. I think she's incredibly relatable. And and that's from someone who, you know, fortunately, I haven't had to have i've i've known and had very close friends and family members who've dealt with significant mental uh, health concerns but i haven't gone through that myself so i can't speak to like the scenes with her in duluth and these other you know elements of of her you know struggle with mental health and trying to be together and be happy and be healthy and all those things at once however just on a base level as a people pleaser I completely <laughs> connect to that as, you know, like someone who takes on, uh, who can find myself overwhelmed from taking on too much. Uh, and then, but then wor- then worrying that I'm actually then missing the opportunities that I actually need. Like th- there's so much for me to relate to on the show. And that's, you know, we, and, and I, I feel like they do such a great job of creating this central character who's incredibly distinct, but also I think very, very relatable. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's hard to make comedy about mental illness or mental illness diagnoses without making jokes at the expense of mental illness or, or without milking it for drama. Uh, but Lady Dynamite 
it presents a fictionalized version of Maria Bamford's story, by the way. Mm -hmm. People who follow her stand-up or her interviews know some of the ways in which the story varies from her actual backstory. And, and we can't know all the ways it does. And that's one of the things great fiction does is recreate a sense of truth without necessarily relating the entire picture of reality. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to do that without feeling exploitative, but Lady Dynamite, it manages to be really frank. It's unflinching. It's really, really funny, but it's a view from the inside out, not from the outside in. So it doesn't marginalize the experience of having a mental disorder. It, it normalizes it, it as it should, because that's something many of us live with. I mentioned last time I was on the podcast, I, I have some mental illness. I have some mental disorders. I have, I have an experience of PTSD. I have depression. I have severe anxiety. Antidepressants have changed my life. And that's not something that I need to be embarrassed about. That's any more than if I needed asthma medication, I would be embarrassed about it. That's just a fact of my life. And having someone so powerfully normalize that view is very meaningful to me to have that just it's just a, another factor of her life uh it's not her her bipolar 2 diagnosis isn't a defining characteristic it's just one more thing in the background of her life and sometimes it comes to a crisis and sometimes it doesn't just like her career or her romances or you know her relationship with her dogs or her relationship with her friends and i just noticed that i put the dogs first but well, that i was going to say her love right. was significant yeah yeah <laughs> yeah frankly the dogs should have come before the romances too i think right <laughs> yeah well, I think this point about normalization is really significant, not only from a representational standpoint within how the show depicts Maria's um, struggles and her perspective on things, but also how other people within the show respond to it in ways that aren't necessarily overly harsh, overly judgy. There's a desire to meet her on some level. So, like, when she's trying to um, make sense of how things work with Brendan uh, Routh's character or um, with uh, Scott, especially with Scott, um, there's this, we're trying to meet each other, like, halfway. I'm trying to understand you, you're trying to understand me, and we each have these different lenses. And there's never, like, this massive, well, you're just nuts, lady, and I can't deal with this, apart from just... I, I don't want to do this, and I know that this isn't healthy for me to do this with the Dean Kane character, and I did this with my mom, and I'm not going to do this anymore. And just the realizations of these kind of mature responses to everyone's behavior, I think, is really, really telling. And that the least mature response are, like, all the Karen Grishams. And we need to talk about all the Karen Grishams, I think. We need to talk about all the Karen Grishams, or... Is it Karen's Grisham? Like, searching Karen, generally. I, I like that more. I like Karen's Grisham more than I like Karen Grisham's. I like that much more. Yes. Yes. I just we'll go with that. Yeah, no, definitely right. Karen's Grisham's. And this is this is where I have to uh, you know, shamefacedly admit, I had not noticed 
I noticed it like I, I noticed it like around when did I notice it? I think I noticed it around like episode nine, but I chalked it up to me just not paying as close attention as I felt I should have been. And then I just went, wait a minute. Two of these characters are definitely named Karen Grisham. I'm really confused right now about what's happening. And then I realized that the Jenny Slate character was also named Karen Grisham, and I became very confused. <laughs> well, like, because, I, I, you know, the, the split in time, and because, let's be honest, a lot of times when I'm watching these shows, we watch a lot of TV on the Televerse. Uh, if I don't catch a name, I just go, oh, it's Anna Gasteyer. And just in my brain, everything's like, yes. okay, it's... Anna Gasteyer's character, um, or you know, or Jenny Slater, or these different people who come up. Um, and so when we have her mention, oh, that is, I, I meant, and I know another Karen Grisham. Whatever, I was like, oh wait, is, is she saying that she's? She, and she says maybe it's my sister. And I was like, oh, is that actress June Diane Raphael? Is she playing two characters? And like, I didn't, like, I didn't, I don't, I don't even know. But so I felt like an idiot when I was like, oh. That's awesome. <laughs> well, they don't. I don't think they lampshade it. I don't think they, they don't. draw your attention not until to the it. End. Right, not until the end. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I, ha I have to. I think I'm gonna. I, you made me feel really good because I noticed it the first time the second Karen Grisham showed up. I said, "What?" And that makes <laughs> me feel good. Now, of course, I was watching it with the attention of someone who's going to be writing about it immediately. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I. All right. Here comes my first spoiler warning. In case there's anyone listening who hasn't seen the end, yeah. If you if you have not seen it, listeners, check it out. Especially if you like comedy. If you're listening this long, you you should check it you've out. You've seen it, yeah. You've yeah, seen it already. You see, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> watch at least through four, and then if you don't, if it's not for you, that's fine. Come back, listen to the rest. Get spoiled. If if you like it, then watch more and come back after you finish watching. There will be plenty of spoilers. Spoilers ahoy! No more spoiler warnings. Emily, dive in. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the end by talking about the beginning a little bit. The, the thing that struck me about Lady Dynamite right from the first minute is how elaborately structured it is without yeah. sacrificing any sense of immediacy. It feels really fresh. It feels really spontaneous, but it's densely layered in a way that is only possible with careful planning. Yes. And... Uh, that that kind of planning, it's it's crucial in a show with three separate timelines. It's crucial in any show that wants to have any sort of coherency and consistency. But if you're if you're operating with the same protagonist in three different locations and times, you need to have it structured and staged in such a way that the audience can tell without having to wonder every time. Except that I ended up wondering a couple of times because it took me way too long and then this speaks way more to my my viewing time than the show structure and that it took me a few minutes to figure out the pat the chronology of where everything was happening and that was just more my fault than the show's fault but i kept going but this isn't the past it's the same color scheme so this happened after duluth right and I just kept getting, like, tripped up over that. But back back to your point, because that was more me not paying close enough attention. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So I, I think that they knew that, that that may have been a problem for, for some viewers, and particularly yeah. for people who have the TV on kind of in the background, kind of half watching it. And I think yeah. that's why they put in the title cards. Mm -hmm. And and I love that. I love that. I love that convention. But I yeah. also love that they're making it as easy for you as they can because they know it is challenging to watch. But if you're paying attention, it gets a lot easier really fast. And that 
kind of attention. Okay, so that clarity, it, it helps the viewer tag along with all the timelines, but it also anchors Lady Dynamite so that the surreality of it doesn't, doesn't overwhelm you. Like everything feels very carefully detailed and, and tethered to the characters and to the universe they inhabit. But at the same time, that careful planning means that they can sneak in hints about the characters and the world that they inhabit. And I don't know if after the end of the series, if either of you has had a chance to rewatch the first episode. Not yet. Okay. There is a detail in the very first, I'm going to say minute of the series that I noticed at the time. And then I, it, it didn't land for me. It's a brick joke. It didn't land for me until quite a bit later. Um, in the fantasy sequence, the manic episode sequence, the show mm -hmm. begins with the sassafras lady sequence. Maria is introduced in the first minute or so. She's sliding down a slide. And if you go back and look at it, the slide is outfitted with a pair of enormous eyeglasses frames with studs on them. Oh, they're the exact, yeah, yeah, they're the exact same glasses that <laughs> that Agent Karen Grisham, that Anna Anna Gasteyer is wearing later when Maria meets her. And that that slide is, I mean, this may not be the symbol that the writers intended, but it is easy to interpret. That slide is her mania. That that tumble is her tumbling down from mania to depression. And it's such a great little touch. It doesn't make any sense when you first see it. And it's just in the background. So you don't even have to consciously see it. But when those glasses show up again, you recognize them. Consciously or unconsciously, you see them and go, oh, wait a minute. And that's just such a great little detail for the finale when you find out, listeners, that the three Karens Grisham, in addition to apparently being real people in Maria's world, are also a manifestation of her hypomania. And I just, I love that detail. It made me so happy to see that come to fruition. It's such a thoughtful, subtle piece of set dressing that is going to go unnoticed for most viewers. But it shows you how carefully they're building this world. And I respect that. That's what makes a show as good as this one is. So there's a bit of a pause here because you've blown my mind, <laughs> Emily. I look for—I was already looking forward to go back, going back and watching these early episodes again. Um, planning, a, a mo I'm honestly I'm planning to watch most of this season again. Um, anyways, but uh, that keeping an eye out for that I think will be really, uh, really a lot of fun and other details like that. But I, I think not only is that a fantastic observation and really telling of the type of show that this series wants to be, because that's a bold move when you think about it. Like, because those, like we've said, those first episodes are, they kind of, it's, it's a lot and it pushes you away. They don't like welcome you. Like watch our show, watch the first episode. You'll get hooked. And then you want to watch the, they, they start out kind of by pushing you away. If they, they give you as many reasons as you're going to get to not watch this show. <laughs> With the first episode, rather than, you know, most shows are going the opposite direction. And so I think that's 
actually in some ways a really interesting, you know, approach or metaphor for the type of people who would Maria, you know, the character shows herself to be one of those as well, who's like going to push you away so that you don't, you can't hurt her, you know, which we see her do, um, you know, later in the end of the season when she just assumes, it's like when she brings her, her boyfriend to their comedy, it's like, okay, well now you've seen that I'm horrible, so you can leave and I understand and, you know. Uh, so I think that's actually an interesting comparison for the character, but I, I also want to key into one of the other things that you'd said here about the immediacy of these three time periods because like I was keying into just the obviously the blue color for Duluth, but also just her hair. So if I look down for a moment and I look back up, it'd be like, ah, hyper hairsprayed. This is the past. Okay, loose curls. This is the present. I appreciate those little like can you know continuity elements. But um, you're right. They do feel incredibly immediate. They all feel like they're happening in the same place because it, it, it feels like there's like at least two or three shows in one. And I think that's part of what gives the show so much, um, gives it a lot of its depth, is that we get to see, instead of having, like, the payoff you'd get three seasons, four seasons down the line, when, um, or, like, I could connect it with something like the Americans, like, when Gregory's name gets dropped and we haven't seen him for seasons, but you realize that um, you're seeing the after effects of that relationship still continue to play out. In this show instead of having to wait three, four seasons to see the way that the, you know, the decision she makes about her meds in the end of the season affect like creates and affects everything with Duluth all the way through the series, you get to actually see that while it's happening without it, without losing the urgency of each of the timelines. I, I think that's really impressive because they should, it, you know, as soon as you are seeing this, what part of my prequels so rarely work is that, you already know what's going to happen. So as you wait for the show to catch up with the in, in media ray and media res opening or with the other um, product, whether it's a show or a film um, project that, you know, will connect to it. Um, it's, it's really hard for it to have weight or stakes to it, but does, I think they do a really good job of making each of these corners of the show feel, so, feel, feel distinct, kind of feel like their own, separate show but also allow payoffs that normally because it does feel like the char- the same Maria at, after a while in three very different point- points in her life it lets you also get the payoffs that normally you'd have to wait for several seasons to, to get um, at least that's what I'm spitballing here that's what it makes sense to me right now what what do you think Noel? well and I think that my question about the show structure and paying off ideas and also laying seeds for things like Emily mentioned with uh, the glasses slide is how much of this was developed in realization of where the show was going to end up, which is on Netflix and the ability to binge watch. Um, And this process of watching episodes back to back to back. So you get into the rhythm of things. uh, So you understand how the show is structured. You can see Emily's point, like the slide and the glasses, setting up the Grishams. But how much of this, I wonder, would land as well and suture you into the show as well if you just watched an episode a week? I, I can't speak to watching an episode a week, but when I was reviewing it, I I observed my usual protocol, which is I don't watch the next episode until I have finished the current review. So sure. I was watching it every about every 36 hours. I was on an every other day schedule. 
And that's still really quick. It's still it's still very fast. It's still very fast. But it meant that I was able to view them as discrete discrete entries and not as an ongoing like stream of consciousness viewing yeah. experience. And I've forgotten your question. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just the fact that even within like discrete units, but still really close together discrete units, like arguably like miniseries discrete units in a miniseries that aired each day in a week is that, or the soap opera type of situation, uh, where your response and ability to notice things and the show's ability to absorb you into its universe is very much grounded in the fact that, again, whether they knew or not is a question, is that if they knew that they were going to be on Netflix, if they, they Okay, so then they are developing a show that can reward that kind of binge viewing by planting seeds and setting up a structure that easily allows people to fall into rhythms. Uh, or how, how, but then becomes my question of how well does that kind of stuff play within a week-to-week view? So, like, we talked about how, Emily, you mentioned how easily the show walks you through the timeline issue, time, different timelines, but I wonder how well that plays if you don't watch an episode within even, like, 36-hour chunks. And I, I, don't, I, I don't know if that's, like, true. I'm not knocking the show's structure or anything, but I'm trying to suss out our reception of the show, its production process, and how how those things are intermingled with one another, basically. I'm a, I've, I've, I tend to default to give the viewers credit versus not. Um, I think that none of us can really give an objective answer to that because we all watch a lot of TV, so we're all really good at that. Yeah, but, I don't think that there's an objective answer here, but I'm yeah. curious about an experiential, like someone else if someone else could speak to that sort of thing, how their response would be yeah. necessarily to it. And I, I don't know that there's an answer. Yeah, I would think any of us would be fine watching it week to week um, and and being able to catch the, the shifts between the different segments. I think we would all be fine. I don't know. Uh, I think my grandma would be really confused. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because she does not watch much TV at all. So I think it's an interesting question. But I, one that I that they didn't have to worry about because they knew that they were developing for Netflix. And it just points to the way that television production and the craft of what the com- a comedy can be or what a half hour show more specifically can be is changing in the new, uh, the new landscape. And I, I also think, I think it's a great question, Noel. And I think it is unanswerable because right. yeah. yeah, we're all, we're all so versed in the ways of TV that it's impossible for us to imagine what it would be like. <sighs> I'm trying to think of, like, someone whose favorite show is Modern Family might have a really hard time with Lady Dynamite. Or they might not, because the show has gone out of its way to make the timelines comprehensible for most of their audience, I think. And I'm basing that, to be fair, I'm basing that on having read the comments in my reviews at the AV Club. And even the commenters are probably more versed in TV conventions and particularly in meta conventions than a yeah. lot of the average viewing audience. So that's not, that's not the fairest, but it's the only, the only focus group I've got. Sure. But 
I think, Kate, this goes back to what you were saying about the first episode being diving right in with the the exuberance and the slightly challenging experience of watching it from the very first minute. You're kind of... I didn't find it as disorienting, I think, as a lot of viewers did, just because I'm so familiar with Bamford's comic voice and also with absurd TV in general that I I just went, oh, yeah, this is this is for me, baby. <laughs> but I think I think some people found it really unsettling. And I get what you're saying. And I think it's a great point that it that resonates with the image of Bamford herself or of Maria. Let's talk about the fictional character of Maria yeah. as someone who pushes people away so that she doesn't have to, she doesn't have to handle the intimacy of having them closer, but it's also a really powerful statement about who the person is, who the character is and what the show is. This is the show I am meet me on my own terms or maybe it's not for you and that's okay. And I admire that. That's that's gutsy. We are over our time. Oh dear. And we haven't mentioned Fred Melamed. Oh. So oh, we need to do that disgrace. quickly. Yeah. yeah. Do we have I mean he's delightful. He's so he's so wonderful. He takes this character who could be pathetic or scheming or smarmy and he is all of those yes (laughs) but he's also he's such i just want to give him a little hug and wrap him in a blanket and tell him it's gonna be okay even though it's not gonna be okay (laughs) i love him so much he he worked with bamford on benched which i also got to review for the av club and they were so good (laughs) Bruce and Melamed's uh, performance is just, it's so good. And like you said, it's just, he's, he contains as many multitudes as Maria does. And so when they build up to him living in his van and he's basically just like, Maria, I can't deal with your shit right now. I just like, I broke a little bit because like he had been like very consistent with her and him, her with him so that little moment of him being like haggled over by this Craigslist hipster jerk and Maria needing someone to talk to and going to the one person who's always had an open door for her, even if he's kind of, again, kind of schemy and pathetic, but is always there for her in a weird way. is just like him saying, I can't do this right now is just gut-wrenching and it's so good and it comes at just the right moment and he's just in that moment really well it's a terrific scene and he's so good in it yeah he's spectacular and and so is maria bamford i didn't know she could act i knew she could be funny (laughs) i knew she could do her stand-up i knew she could be engaging and approachable i didn't know she could actually gut me but (laughs) she can the the whole the quality of the show is really exceptional and and that goes right down to the cinematography it's really beautifully filmed the i mean they're really explicit about the timeline stuff and and the narrative necessity of distinguishing between the scenes but it's also really thoughtfully staged in other ways just it's uh if you look at the framing of the scenes in Duluth it's not just the color 
or the styling, but the space that's given to the characters. Yeah. There's one scene, and I, I actually wrote about it in brief in one of my reviews. There's a scene in No Friend Left Behind where um, where Maria is, she's an inpatient, and her friend Jill Quatney Edelman uh, comes to visit her in the inpatient, the rec center. And they're sitting in this room. It's not huge, but they're sitting in a rec room and the space around them seems really big and, and echoey and cavernous. And it's dim and bleak and blued out and grayed out. But it's shot through with a couple of beams of light that they pick up. Like Maria's eyes are animated by these little reflections of light. And you just know there's someone moving around behind the camera, moving the light so that it's picking out her eyes and a couple of tufts of hair and the bones of her hands as they're laying there just slack over her lap as she sits in a wheelchair and it's just it looks it looks like a late northern renaissance painting it's so yeah beautiful and bleak and dreary and striking it's really an exceptionally good looking show Right. No, your point about the Renaissance paintings is actually really, really, really spot on, I thought, because I had the same thought that a lot of the Duluth stuff feels very painterly in good ways, not in like a really negative way. And this, particularly this idea, because your point about like the way that that cavernous feeling of the rec center really keyed in and reminded me of like retroactively of how much of that is just especially the Duluth stuff is done in like wide shots or as wide as they can get given the setting. And which is, which happens in the past and in the present, but it's just much more aggressively noticeable, I think, in Duluth in that there are all these wide shots. There are very few close-ups and the most close-ups we get is basically just a medium shot. And it's just, it's really fascinating to watch the composition in the, in, within the Duluth stuff, especially. Like, I keyed in a lot to those aesthetics with the Duluth, um, just how everything just really looked. Yeah. And even just the feel of Duluth, I, I also appreciate that they morph that over the season. As she is, you know, when when she's first there, it feels very different. Or like like when they cut to, you know, different depending on like that episode where we we're seeing her interact with her friend, cuts back to an earlier part of the Duluth timeline than where we are at various other points in that. Um, and they really they show the arc of Maria getting more well over over the course of her time in Duluth, and I think they do a really good job of of showing that as well and putting you. In, so it's not just that they need to put you in the Duluth timeline. In general, they need to put you in a specific point within each of the different timelines. Um, and they they do a really good job with all of that, at least for me, for as us TV nerds, right? It's very clear for us and hopefully for other people watching. Um, I also wanted to mention before we're out of time here, uh, Werner Herzog, doggy voice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could never decide in the reviews whether he was Werner Hertz dog or Werner Hertz pug. Mm. They're both good. Yeah, they're, they're both, both pretty, pretty terrible. They're really, they're both, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, they're both the worst. But he's <laughs> he's so good. And I've I've blanked on his name. That is one of the writers for the show. It's Kyle McCulloch. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he's great. And then the voice of Blossom is Maria Bamford herself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic as Bert. There's 
everybody on the show is so good. And I feel terrible that we don't have enough time to to praise all of them because her family is great. Her friends are fantastic. Lennon Parham and Bridget Everett are so great as Maria's friends and as mortal enemies. Everybody on the show is so well cast and, and giving it a hundred and everything. <laughs> I don't want to say 110. What a cliche, but I did. Mm -hmm. uh, When's the last time good. Dean Cain was this good? When's yeah. the last time I saw Dean Cain in anything? He was wonderful. Yeah. He was great. Yeah. And do we have Sorry, two Superman? Yeah. Two Supermen. Or are they, again, Supermans? I don't really know. Supersmen? Yeah. Well, do we, uh, why don't we go around then with any final thoughts, any other characters or moments or episodes that we haven't mentioned? Emily? I think, I think I want to talk about the overall quality of the show, that it's, it's really thoughtful. It's really funny. It's really smart and incisive and, and sometimes it's bleak, but it's a really optimistic show in a way that many smart, incisive shows aren't. It's really about being at your worst and finding a way to turn that into your best. Not the best, but your best. It's about being the best person you can be with the situation you're given and finding the best in your life. And that's that's so rare for a show to be smart and witty and creative and experimental and still be really earnest that doesn't happen as often as I would like and it genuinely moves me to see Lady Dynamite manage all of that no um I'm trying to think uh I'm really split because um I really liked uh the episode where she ends up in the checklist Mexico training center um, just that entire episode, the, that entire section of that episode is just really, really great, I think, and just really compelling and interesting and puts the incisiveness on something else. Um, but I go back to like episode 11, which is mind ramp, um, and her dealing with being the face of a child soldier army. And I just... I just like all of that, and plus she's, like, in the flashbacks, she's dealing with, like, whether or not to take her meds and the ramifications of doing that and what that means. And I just, I really keyed into that episode and a lot of what was going in on that episode. So I'll go with uh, Mind Ramp as something that really stood out to me. Hmm. Um, I'm going to give a shout-out to Hose Way. Yeah. <laughs> really, just really funny. And also the, um, uh, the just the kooky... But also, when put in context, really kind of meaningful uh, climax to the season with a Mighty uh, Morphin Power Rangers type style fight S with Mark McGrath. Super Sentai fight with Sugar Ray. Yeah, just such, yeah, such a, I would not have expected that's where we were going. But I think they managed to, you know, to, to have it be ridiculous, but also have it make complete narrative and uh, emotional sense. At the same time. So uh, congratulations to Lady Dynamite. Also, shout out to the music and the original songs, of which there are a delightful number. And uh, to Marie Bamford's excellent violin technique. For someone who's not a violinist, she has very good posture and technique, even though she should use more bow. But sounds very good. 
I'm so glad you pointed that out on Twitter, Kate, because yeah. I wouldn't have known, but I'd love to know that the details of it are that someone's making an effort, <laughs> that it's not yeah. another empty coffee cup, because that's so frustrating when you see someone on TV making no effort to mimic the style of something that is your particular specialty. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Well, and I mean, I don't know any, I don't have any evidence or reason to back this up other than my experience, but I guarantee you she played violin as a kid. I guarantee you she played Suzuki violin because the two pieces that she plays are in the Suzuki repertoire. They're also standalone classical pieces, but I would be very, very surprised if she wasn't a Suzuki kid um, who had played for many years growing up. Oh, that is such a great detail. This is one of the reasons I love talking to you guys. Well, this is like... I just, when you, I, this is part of why I just assumed she was very involved in the writing process because that the way that she holds her posture and she clearly does have a background in violin um, for, and so the fact that it's like, oh, she, her mom wouldn't let her quit. She played when she was a kid for, for many years. Like I was like, yeah, that is exactly based on what, you know, her playing the violin. That is, that is what happened. So that's one of those elements that I would be like, I would be shocked if that was not in her background. That's such a great detail. Okay, can I share a little detail with you guys? Go the, for it. The title of Mine Ramp. Do you know the origin of the title? In the episode? Yeah. Well, uh, no, outside the episode. I mean, like, there's Mein Kampf. <laughs> outside the episode. I... I was dreading this as soon as I saw the title and I was watching, as I said, I was watching the shows episodically instead of as a binge. And there was an event a few years ago where Maria Bamford, you know, she does have pugs and she, she went public with the announcement that she had absentmindedly moved the ramp that one of her dogs used to get I think it was off of a porch but where doesn't matter and her dog had fallen and died oh, and God. yeah and I completely expected this episode to relate that story in the text of the episode but it didn't it went in a different direction and and that is part of what I'm talking about when I say, you know, some some of her fans will know where the story deviates from her actual life story. And some of it we can't know. And that is appropriate. And that title is, I think it must just be a little tip of the hat to the story that some of us know and that she has been very public about, but that she's not fictionalizing. She's she's not portraying that story. It's a different version of the same feeling as a narrative. And that's so interesting to me, how clearly it draws a line between her real life and her fictional life. I, I think it's so smart and so sensitive and really heartbreaking. Yeah. It's a beautiful show. I, I, I just love it so much. And I'm I'm so grateful that we got it. And I'm so grateful that I got to cover it in depth. And I'm grateful well, to be here talking about it. I was going to say, we're grateful that you came on to talk with us about it. And hopefully some of our listeners who, if they're listening, hopefully they've already given it a chance. But if they ignored the spoiler warning, hopefully they will go give it a chance and and, and check it out. Because, uh, yeah, it is a very, like, 
like I just can keep repeating myself. Watch. It's a lot. Watch the beginning, but but keep going through because it will welcome you in. The show will welcome you in as you go through a few more. Um, and I look forward to hearing from our listeners who have checked it out or who may be checking it out just, you know, around who have already watched it or might just be watching it around this time to hear what, what, what they think about it. But um, I certainly had a lot of fun watching, watching Lady Dynamite uh, way more than I anticipated. Like after the first three, I thought it would be like really interesting, but more um, intellectual for me. But very quickly it was just, I, breezed through the rest of them and I was having an intellectual uh, uh, relationship with it but also very emotional relationship with it as well so I think that's a sign of a really interesting and really uh, a really worthwhile show so thank you Emily for coming out to talk with us thank you for having me I appreciate it where can our listeners find you and your work online I am a tv critic at the AV club and if you want to connect with me on twitter I'm at Emily or else Uh, Thank you once more, Emily, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. 